This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Can I please have your attention? Can you dig it? Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Um, I know I've been kind of missing in action the last week, um, and we've gotten some complaints about it. All I can tell you guys is. Uh, I wish it were that I could have uh, met all my obligations and done the G file on Wednesday and the dispatch live event and all of that, but uh, uh, very pressing personal stuff got in the way that you know I don't want to talk about quite yet for reasons that when I talk about it will be kind of obvious why I want why I didn't want to talk about it. Um, but I guess uh, it's sort of a it's a good example of how. Um, often, you know, this is one of, the, one of these things that I have noticed for, you know, 25 years of being fairly open <laughs> with my, my readers and my, you know, and later my listeners and all of that kind of stuff, um, my Twitter followers, whatever, is that one of the problems when you have, when you put yourself out there a bit more than the normal pundit, uh, when you have other stuff going on in your life that you don't want to share a lot of people, um, both of goodwill and of bad will and everything in between, uh, take it upon themselves to project or fill in the blanks, um, with their own theories about why I'm in a bad mood or why I didn't file or why, um, um, I sound angry or depressed or ebullient or whatever. And, um, um, and it's part of a larger phenomenon where people, there are a lot of people who, who, who act as if they have better access to my motives and, um, my intentions than I do. And there are very few things in absolute terms I am an expert on. There's, there's nothing I know a great deal about compared to the normal person that I can't think of five, 10, 50, or a thousand people, maybe not a thousand that I can think of, but I'm sure that they exist, um, 
who know a lot more than me, right? I've never pretended to be the foremost expert on pretty much anything. But the one thing I actually am, I think, the foremost expert on is my interior life and what I'm thinking and why I'm saying what I'm saying or not saying what I'm saying. And it's a difficult, and I'm, I don't think I'm alone in this, but it's, you almost need a German word to describe the feeling of, of frustration or annoyance. Um, it depends on the circumstance or bemusement or amusement. Um, when people tell you they know why you're doing something or why you did something or why you wrote something, what your real agenda is as if they know better than I know myself what my agenda is or isn't or whether I have even have a friggin agenda at all. And, um, um, you know, maybe one of these days I should do a podcast where I just get other pundits or people in similar weird professions like mine, um, particularly from the old blogging days and just do a gripe session, um, about the sort of the weird little things that, um, uh, are frustrations about this crazy life I've chosen. So anyway, um, I'm not trying to be overly cryptic. I just, this is some stuff I, I can't and won't and don't want to talk about right now. Um, but I, I had a good excuse and I apologize to anybody, um, who's sincerely offended or upset or feel like I am not giving them their money's worth at, uh, among our dispatch members, but it is what it is. So, um, um, in part because of my cryptic reasons for not being around, I also haven't been able to follow the news as much as I would like, but I was on Twitter a good deal today following this, uh, bizarre, like freak out about the prospect of Elon Musk maybe buying Twitter. And I gotta say, I just don't. I don't get it really. Um, I think um, Abe over at Commentary uh, probably had the best pithy, sort of almost haiku like explanation of what's going on. Um, he said, There are a lot of people out there who confuse Twitter for the real world. So when news gets out that Elon Musk is buying Twitter or might buy Twitter, um, they confuse that for Elon Musk buying the world. Um, and, you know, I think there's a certain amount of poetry to that explanation. I don't think he meant it absolutely uh, literally, but there's a real truth to it. Um, the number of people who think that, like, Twitter is the most important place for them to be, it's sort of like um, what, those, what folks hope to get out of Second Life, you know, that sort of virtual reality thing, or what Zuckerberg hopes to get out of, of, you know, the, the meta world or whatever he's calling that stuff. Um, uh, there are some people who kind of do get that out of Twitter and they think that the feedback they get on it, it corresponds to the real world in a significant way, um, uh, for good or for ill. And, um, the Elon Musk stuff just had people going going crazy like people saying oh if elon musk buys this thing i'm walking away um or elon musk is going to save twitter and restore free speech throughout the kingdom um and i think both of these things are 
kind of nonsense. Um, you know, maybe Elon Musk would, if he buys it, and right now it kind of sounds like maybe he won't, but if Musk bought Twitter, maybe he'd restore um, Donald Trump's account, which is, again, one of these weird things where um, the people who want him to restore Donald Trump's account the most don't realize how bad that would be for Donald Trump and the people who are most terrified by the idea that Donald Trump's account would be re re restored um, don't seem to realize how good it would be for, for Democrats if he did that. Um, but there's a, you know, there's a sort of a broader thing. There's also just this, this bizarre like theme running through big chunks of the media about how, how terrifying it would be if a billionaire got control of a major media platform. And I'm like, what media landscape are you looking at right now? Um, Bezos owns the Washington Post. Rupert Murdoch owns uh, News Corp. I mean, yeah, these are more publicly traded institutions and all of that, but the, the net result is the same. It's not like there's somebody telling Jeff Bezos you can't do X or Y because of the class of shares that he has. It's not like anybody doubts that Rupert Murdoch or the Murdoch family is in control of Fox. I don't know what the corporate structure of Bloomberg is, but I'm pretty sure that there's this guy named Bloomberg who has an outsized amount of control of Bloomberg media. Um, I don't know where Carlos Slim, the Mexican billionaire, stands in his total control of the New York Times, but I'm, I suspect it's significant. You can go down a long list. I mean, like, this is the world we live in, and um, I don't really see how like it's a cause of existential panic or joy if Elon Musk takes over Twitter. You know, as I put it today, either he makes it worse, which would just be a continuation of existing trends, or he makes it better, which would be good. Um, my suspicion is, is that if he took it over, it'd be a little of both. He'd probably get an edit button, um, which I would like. Um, and he'd probably be more expansive on the free speech stuff, which, depending on how you implement that, would probably be good, I guess. I mean, I certainly, I think there's a lot of exaggeration about the shadow banning and the, the censorship of conservative accounts, but I think some of that stuff does happen, and maybe the errors would go in the other direction for a little while. Um, or maybe not. It's not like Elon Musk is this famous right-winger. Um, you know. People forget he used to be a darling of the left because he was this big, you know, climate change guy. In fact, he launched a hugely successful electric car company that relied on massive amounts of subsidies from the government uh, that made him so rich in the first place. It's not like he's, you know, some, you know, he's not Charles Koch. Um, and so, you know. But at the end of the day, there will still be content moderation for two reasons. Um, one, it's basically impossible not to have content moderation um, at some level. I mean, I, 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 I doubt that he wants to um, open up Twitter to snuff films and, you know, and you know, really profane Canadian porn or whatever. Um, so there's going to be some content moderation. Maybe there'll be less. Maybe there'll be a better algorithm. I, I don't know. Maybe 
there'll be less fewer thumbs on the on the scales about how algorithms work in a certain direction you know who who knows but there's going to be content moderation um and the second reason there's going to be content moderation is that if it really does go just sort of wild wild west people will leave twitter you know um it'll actually probably invite government regulation in to um police twitter more and that will be a fraught and complicated conversation because the people who want the government to get in with a fairness doctrine for social media or whatever tend to be on both sides of the ideological spectrum and what they think that content moderation should look like or what that fairness definition should be uh, varies wildly. But, you know, if all of a sudden it's, you know, you know, Tijuana donkey shows or whatever all over Twitter, you can be sure that, you know, Congress is going to start doing something. Um, and, you know, people ask me all the time, you know, what, um, you know, what do I want to do about big tech? And I talked about this a little, I think last week, I can't remember, you know, and you know, part of my answer to that is it depends what you mean by big tech. Um, uh, but I'm totally in favor of a whole bunch of pretty major regulations that conform with the first amendment. Um, you know, the first amendment allows you to regulate for obscenity, for the promotion of violence. Um, for hate speech, as we sort of define it, you know, I mean, there are bad definitions of hate speech and good definitions of hate speech. Um, you know, maybe there's room to jiggle with the, you know, what is it, the Sullivan precedent in the Supreme Court and, uh, and, and tighten up what, or loosen up what we mean by promoting violence. I don't know, but it certainly, a privately owned platform can have whatever definition it wants for um, what constitutes promoting violence. And I very much doubt that under the Musk regime that there, there wouldn't be some rule about that. Um, so anyway, I just think it was all very, very weird and kind of hysterical and a real Rorschach test about all sorts of things. I think I've talked about this before about, you know, I don't have super strong feelings about Elon Musk one way or the other. Personally, you know, I think there is sort of, there's almost a literary quality and it's a depressing one to have, you know, the guy who wants to get us to Mars and become a multi-planet species um, and do hyperloops and feats of engineering and sort of be the best response to the Peter Thiel critique um, of what the digital revolution, you know, about the technological changes that we've gotten. We, you know, the famous sort of line is, you know, we wanted jetpacks and flying cars and instead we got memes and, um, or whatever the real quote is, I can't remember, but that's the gist of it. And, um, there's something kind of sad about the idea that this guy is taking his eye off the ball of, you know, the coloniz colonization of Mars uh, to uh, get sucked into the vortex of social media, culture war stuff. It just seems like there's a higher, better use of his time. Um, and, but beyond that, you know, like, 
I've never been part of like the cult of Elon Musk throughout any of his iterations. I do think the way in which he has become a hate figure for the left is kind of fascinating, given that like there's pretty much nobody in Western civilization um, or really on the planet who has done more to normalize the idea of converting to electric vehicles than Elon Musk. Um, he has figured out a way, you know, again, there's a lot of crony capitalism to it, but he's figured out a way to monetize, to create a, a, a feasible business model for electric cars. It kind of reminds me, I, I, I'm sure I've told this story before, but I knew a guy who owned a, opened up a coffee shop, a high-end, clever, one of the first ones I started to go to in the 90s, maybe the early 2000s, must have been the 90s, um, in Adams Morgan. I didn't know him well, but like I knew him well enough to say hi and had conversations with him every now and then. And um, I remember he was saying how, you know, it's funny, the a lot of the patrons of this place really hated Starbucks. They thought of it as corporate coffee, you know, and all this kind of stuff. And, um, and they wanted to be good sort of, um, bohemians and, and have their coffee from an independent coffee place, which is fine, whatever. Um, but his position was, you know, he loves Starbucks because if it weren't for Starbucks, no, it would have been impossible to educate the consumer to spend, you know, three bucks on a cup of coffee. You know, when I was growing up, you got that, you know, you know, the, the classic to-go coffee was that half, you know, uh, size, you know, short size coffee cup um, with the sort of faux Greek theme on it and blue background with like in the gold and gold lettering saying it's our pleasure to serve you. It's sort of iconic now in a retro kind of way. You know, that was like, you know, 50 cents for a cup of coffee, if that. And um um, and it was Starbucks that put out this idea of high-end, artisanal, you know, expensive, uh, you know, conspicuous consumption, expensive coffee. Um, and when you look at, like, what people pay every month for coffee these days, even adjusting for inflation and all that, it would have been bizarre to somebody 25 years ago, you know, 20 years ago. Anyway, the reason I bring this up is, you know, Elon Musk has sort of done the same thing with electric cars, you know, and he did it the smart way. He first made it a high status thing for rich people with lots of disposable income and um, created that market full of all the early adopters taking advantage of their desire to virtue signal and all the rest, even though a lot of the people who are driving electric cars um, we're really driving coal powered cars because, you know, if you, in, 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 or, and certainly natural gas powered cars, because most of the places where you would get your electricity, um, it wasn't from solar or wind or unicorn poop. It was from coal or natural gas, uh, power plants. And, but that's okay. Right. I mean, the whole point is in a transition, you're going to do lots of things that have weird externalities and have inefficiencies and whatever. And, um, but he took advantage of it and he, um, um, he created a market, right? 
and he created a demand and he normalized it. And then he started working on figuring out ways to make more affordable electric cars down market. And I'm not saying he was the only one. The other, there, you know, Detroit came up with hybrids and, and their own electric cars eventually. But Musk is the guy who gets a lot of credit for that. But now he's kind of despised. And some of it is because of his Twitter behavior. But some of it is, I think, because he's been so successful that uh, he's taken away the psychic gratification you get from virtue signaling driving a Tesla. Because once everybody can do it, um, the, the people who are kind of proud to be spending, to making poor economic decisions, um, lost the ability to virtue signal the same way. And um, I don't think that's all of it, but I think that's some of it. Again, I'm sure there are other fascinating reasons why, you know, the left has come to hate Elon Musk and the right has come to, or the populist right or whatever, has come to like him. Um, but I don't know them because I don't, I don't follow them that closely. But I do think, I think it was Rob Long who first pointed that out, the virtue signaling thing, first pointed that out to me. And I think there's some, there's some real truth to that. All right. Um, what else to talk about? Um, so uh, two things kind of have stuck with me from recent podcasts that we've done. Uh, the first was with uh, um, Megan McArdle, who, you know, I love. Um, someone pointed out that the female guests on The Remnant tend to be better than the male guests. And I started thinking about that. And I think that's true. And I will admit, part of the problem is, is that, you know, we've got a, we've, we've got a statistical disparity here. We don't have enough female guests uh, on the remnant and I should have more and totally fine with that. Um, but the female guests I do have tend to be, for whatever reason, always really, really good. And because we have more men every now and then, the, the men tend to be less spectacular uh because we're you know we're regressing closer to the mean um and it's just something to think about but anyway uh not to say i you know if there are any male former guests of the remnant who actually take offense to any of this let me know and that way i'll never have you back on the remnant um but anyway when i was talking to megan you know in part because i've been thinking a lot about you know and as i mentioned i recently gave a talk about this about about the changing nature of the landscape for of the media landscape and of, of society based upon you know social media stuff and some other things you know um for ai and one of these points that i made in it was that it's not just that institutions are are, are losing their way and forgetting what lane they're supposed to be in and being transformed in the sort of the whole, you know, turning into platforms rather than things that mold personality or, or culture. Um, but also that they're just being sidestepped. Uh, technology, you know, this is a point that Robert Nisbet made, um, point that Yuval makes, you know, institutions weren't created historically so everyone could get together and feel like they belong to something, right? They were created to do things, to solve problems, to um, fix things. And, uh, you know, so, you know, at the end of the 19th century, just to 
beginning of the 20th century, there was an enormous explosion in institution formation. And, um, you know, there's this period where you get the NAACP, you get the ACLU, you get all of these things. And I think a lot of these institutions have become uh, moribund or were corrupted by ideology or by various fundraising strategies and the rest. I'm not sure about the NAACP, but you know, part of the problem with some of these institutions uh, is that when they're successful, they kind of lose their primary reason for existence. And the new theories about why they need to exist attract fewer people because the problems that they're trying to fix just aren't of the same magnitude as the original problems they were trying to fix. You know, when the NAACP was formed. It was to, you know, get black, black people in big chunks of the country the right to vote, their access, the right to access to education, to integration, to, um, you know, get rid of formal racism off the books. And a lot of that has been accomplished, right? I would argue pretty much all of that has been accomplished in terms of the, the formalistic, legalistic stuff. And so, you know, either you declare victory and disband or you pick other fights to fight. And I'm not saying that the new fights that they decided to pick are all bad. I'm, they do lots of good things and there's still, you know, there's still important things to be done for African-Americans in society and all the rest. But they're just not, you know, the massive things that that justified forming it in the first place. And I think you can do this with lots and lots of institutions we will see a version of this i suspect if um the supreme court actually overturns roe v wade there'll be lots of right to life groups that will not simply declare victory and disband they will declare victory and then take the fight to new places and you know you can agree with those fights or disagree with those fights but that's just sort of the nature of the beast but there are lots of institutions, you know, like, you know, the reason, the only reason why the Amish still do those communal, um, barn raising kind of things is because they have adopted norms and customs and you can call them laws, you know, uh, that still make it kind of necessary because of their orientation towards technology and, 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 and all that. And, um, but there are lots of institutions that are created uh, to solve problems. And when those problems no longer exist, the reason for those institutions no longer exists. Um, and I'm sure people who know a lot about uh, sort of the things that organized religion, you know, churches used to do in communities that they don't any longer really do um, could give a lot of examples about this kind of stuff. Uh, technological innovation and prosperity, you know, takes out the need to work with a bunch of other people together towards things that you can just call a plumber for or call, you know, some contractor for. Um, and so anyway, uh, you know, that's one of the drivers that's causing institutions to, to sort of crumble from within. But another thing about it is just, you can just sort of sidestep them entirely. You know, if up until very recently in my, you know, in, in our lives, if you wanted to get something noticed by large numbers of people published, 
you had to go through some very specific narrow channels to do it. That's just that not really the case anymore. And so you can just sort of go around the institutions and the gatekeepers that um, uh, that used to be the the conduits uh, for accomplishing a lot of things. And uh, when I was talking about this with Megan McArdle, uh, someone emailed me afterwards and about this sidestepping institutions thing. And, um, and he made a really good point about how it is just so much easier for a bunch of reasons, not simply technology to sidestep the institution of marriage. Um, you can, you know, the, a lot of the reasons why people got married, um, in the past was first of all, to have, uh, the ability to live away from your parents, but also to have sex, um, uh, non-illicit sex, um, to make babies. And, um, the way our society is now organized, it's kind of much, it's just much easier to do those things if you're determined to do them without uh have without getting married and um you know the birth control pill did a lot to change the culture uh, but so did the lowering of stigma uh, about out of wedlock births and single parenthood and and all that stuff and so the institution of marriage you know a lot of the functions of marriage are still being performed but um i would say not as well and a lot of the, the benefits of marriage are being lost for people who sidestep it but um, people are empowered to be able to do things in ways that they weren't able to do in the past. And anyway, that's not the thing that stuck with me. That was the thing that I went into the conversation with. But then um, uh, Megan made this really interesting point about how, which I had not really thought about as much as I should have, given how much I've written about all these things. Um, how the the lack of institutions that can channel productively populist energy tend to lead to all sorts of bad outcomes. Um, I remember when the Tea Party started, there was a lot, and I, again, I was pro Tea, tea Party in the beginning. Um, there was a lot of chatter about how brilliant it was to um, um, have this disparately organized with lots of different chapters and cells and no formal leadership structure. You know, to have that kind of movement made it very difficult to isolate and demonize a single leader and say, look, all of these people are terrible because they follow X or they listen to X or X is their boss. Instead, it was so grassroots that, and so diffuse and dispersed, it was difficult to combat it in the old style. And I think that was, that was one of the advantages. There was a big piece in the Atlantic about this, you know, at the time. Um, and the downside of that is that without formal structures of leadership, formal institutions designed to execute and and actually accomplish goals, it just becomes a lot of shouting, right? And maybe it even leads to electing a bunch of people, but there's no formal structure of accountability that allows these 
um, populist effusions to actually accomplish their goals. Instead, the, you know, the sort of what leadership structure emerges ends up being pretty grifty. Um, and, you know, I, I don't know, five, eight years ago, my friend Jim Garrity did a great piece about all of the different Tea Party organizations, you know, that used the word Tea Party or the phrase Tea Party in their name. We're just ripping people off. You know, it's sort of the, the Dick Morris model of politics. And, um, and we can see that now with Black Lives Matter and their, um, what appears to be pretty, you know, pretty shabby tax stuff that they've been doing and real estate stuff that they've been doing. And what's funny is that I, ha- I just hadn't connected the dots in the right way, even though I had written a lot about how, um, um, and this is going to sound like a weird segue, but it's not how the Islamic world didn't need a new Martin Luther. It needed a new Catholic church. And, you know, what I meant by that, and this sort of gets into all that, that Protestant Reformation stuff that I was alluding to, um, in um, in the podcast last week and in, um, in two podcasts last week, because of the solo one as well, uh, you know, the Protestant Reformation unleashed massive amounts of what today we would sort of call populist energy, deeply religious, but populist nonetheless, with, with a major political, you know, component to it as well. You know, where you have, you know, there are like there are museums you can go to in Switzerland where they'll have some painting on the wall and they'll say, this was part of whatever school or this was one of the 55 paintings by so-and-so. Um, but it's the only one left because the rest were burned in a riot of iconoclasm, right? Because there were all of these, I can't, I, I don't want to defame any specific not denominations. Was it the Zwingwillians or something? But there were a bunch of different small, hardcore Protestant um, sects that were heavy into the thou shalt not make graven images stuff. Um, and they tore a whole bunch of stuff down. And the reason I bring it up is because that's sort of the same thing that happened with the demise of the Ottoman Empire, where you had um, the Salafists or the Wahhabis or whatever the label we're supposed to use now um, that became much, much more puritanical, much more iconoclastic. There's some amazing stories about how um, the kinds of things that some of the Wahhabis wanted to destroy in Saudi Arabia and and did destroy in terms of tombs and relics from uh, Muhammad's time and all that. And and the part of the problem was is that the conversation, I remember Martin Kramer wrote a bunch about this. The conversation in Middle East studies was all about how what the Middle East needed or the Islamic world needed was a Martin Luther. And depending on how serious the person was, um, uh, you'd sometimes even see, at least at the journalistic level, people talking about how the Islamic world needed a Martin Luther King, which I do think would be great if the Islamic world had gotten more, had more Martin Luther Kings, um, you know, uh, preaching nonviolence and getting it to stick would be great. But, um, Nonviolence was not Martin Luther, the original Martin Luther's bag. Um, 
you know, again, I have lots of friends who are Lutherans. I don't want to get too deep in the weeds on this, but if you just read some of the stuff that Luther said about um, what he wanted to do to the Jews and their synagogues, um, you'll realize that this was not an explicit doctrine of nonviolence. And um, anyway, my point about the Middle East or about the Islamic world was that what it needed was a pope. Because, you know, as bad as some of the bad popes were, and some of the bad popes were bad, you could look it up, uh, one of the great things about the Catholic Church was that it was an old institution that had some grasp about where to bend rather than, you know, stand firm on things. And it had, you know, I think it's fair to say, a long-term investment in its credibility as an institution. And so there were times when it made compromises and I have lots of Catholic friends who don't like some of the compromises and I probably don't like some of the compromises. And then there are other compromises that I think were long overdue and we're not going to get into the weeds of all that. But as an old institution that predated democracy, the Catholic church had institutional memory and institutional mechanisms to adjust to changing times and to adjust to, um, uh, you know, popular outrages. And, you know, <laughs> lots of times it didn't adjust nearly quickly enough for its own good. I remember when I was, you know, I, I think I've talked about this before, but, you know, when I was a television producer, I made a documentary about uh, the Cathedral of Notre Dame. I'm not saying it was a good documentary, but I learned a lot about it, about the Cathedral of Notre Dame. And, and one of the things I always thought was sort of, hilarious and fascinating was, um, you know, the, the standard thing in Paris was, um, every time you were wanted to have a revolution, you know, the first thing you did is barricade the streets. So the soldiers couldn't come get you. And then once you figured out how to do that and set up your little commune, uh, you, you grabbed a bunch of goons and you headed towards the cathedral of Notre Dame and set out to go kill the bishop or the archbishop, or the cardinal, or whoever, whoever, whoever the big cheese was. Um, and so one of the things that this guy Hausman did when he redesigned Paris, he's, the, he's like the Robert Moses of Paris, um, you know, the way you're supposed to come up on the Cathedral of Notre Dame is you're supposed to come out of these medieval tight streets, turn a culture, turn a corner, and then boom, it's right there in front of you, and it immediately draws your eyes upward to the heavens because it's the tallest thing in the city and it's supposed to like lift you up to look towards God and all that. And, um, and what Hausman said, yeah, yeah, that's great. But, um, we need to have a defensive perimeter. And so Hausman instituted this big, you know, it's the uh, Place de Notre Dame or whatever it's called these days. I can't remember, but there's that big plaza in front of Notre Dame. So you can actually see the whole thing from a distance. It's great for postcards. Um, it's great for architecture. But one of the main reasons why he did that was so that snipers would be able to shoot at the mobs before they made it to the front doors of the cathedral. Because if you had the old style architecture, you can get you know right up within the perimeter like within 10 feet of the front doors by just walking down the street and then coming around the corner it was very hard to shoot you and so this thing gave um i, I can't remember what the military term is is for it but a, a gilling zone um to take out mobs that were trying to like you know 
go kill the cardinal or the archbishop or whatever. And uh, anyway, that just came to mind as an example of uh, some changes that maybe came too late or that were insufficient for the, the social uh, passions of the time. Um, so I, th- I think, anyway, I think that this whole idea, when you start thinking about how to think about populism, because I've, you know, I've had these arguments with friends, you know, like Michael Brennan Doherty, he's a good guy. I have my disagreements with him, but he's a friend. And, um, you know, he was very pro-populism. There are lots of guys at National Review that were pro-populism. I, the only populist movement I ever celebrated was the Tea Parties, and that came a cropper too. So I'm just, I'm back on the um, populism is bad thing. Now, with the caveat that, uh, you know, if we actually have a tyranny, right? If we have some sort of um, woke captivity of society or some post-liberal Vermilion republic of society, um, then populism is more, I'm more sympathetic to it because the right term then is rebellion, not, not populism. But the sort of the general glorification of mob anger, uh, you know, leaves me cold. And I think it, it, um, and to whatever extent it has value, and I'm willing to concede there is some value. It certainly sends a signal to elites that they've screwed up something. Um, unfortunately, sometimes that signal is just wrong because, you know, like, let's put it this way. I totally understand, uh, the populism of the free silver movement, uh, you know, and the William Jennings Bryan stuff. But I think I would still be against free silver. Uh, that said, you know, the problems that farmers were facing, you know, you don't have to, you don't have to agree with the policy proposals that the mob is proffering, but recognizing that they formed a mob in response to some, um, real pain is is a good signal for elites. But if you actually want to have a productive policy that comes out of it, you have to have the channeling of that passion towards productive ends. And one of the great ironies, you know, and we're not going to get into a whole thing about how Congress doesn't know how to do things anymore, but that's sort of how the founding fathers envisioned the House of Representatives. You know, there's the whole cooling saucer thing um, that popular passions would make their way to the house. It would get the the house members, you know, the representatives would give their best effort of turning that into a first draft of legislation. And then, you know, the Senate, which is sort of like the house of Lords, um, would be able to take their time and use deliberation to, Coal from the sort of, you know, sort of populism infused demands that came out of the house and, and, and get them in shape to be worthwhile legislation. That was sort of how it was supposed to work. And now we just have this sort of thing that these electrical signals are just supposed to go straight to politicians via, you know, some TV studio or Twitter feed. And, um, and they don't make the legislation in any serious way at least not a lot of the time. Um, and it's just sort of a huge, huge problem. Um, I'm sure there was some other point I was supposed to make there, but I am so fried. So the other thing that I have been thinking a lot about 
And apologies to Matt Continetti and to all of you, but I think this is in part two of my Nerdapalooza with Matt over his new book, um, uh, The Right, which I do, for people who are interested in conservative intellectual history and conservative political history, I really do recommend it. Um, um, I got to say, I just, it, I read it differently than a normal person would because I'm just so close to some of this stuff and have longstanding, fully formed opinions about a lot of it. And so I, I, I think he did a great job, but I'm also just like, I'm not reading it like I'm new to this. If it had been a biography of somebody I knew nothing about or like a history of NASCAR or whatever, I could probably just let it wash over me like a book. Um, but because, you know, I'm like, oh, he, he didn't write about this or he, he wrote about, you know, that this way and blah, 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 blah. It's difficult for me to be wholly, um, I think objective is probably the wrong word, but, um, um, I'm just bringing a lot to the text. Let's just put it that way. But I do think he did a really good job. And, um, I think we elucidated a lot from the book in the two-parter. But I, you know, to be honest, I could have gone for another four or five hours because there were so many other things to talk about. Um, and, and we'll definitely have them back. But um, um, in the second episode, which drop on Tuesday, um, one of the, we, we talked a bit about the, you know, the distinction between being conservative and being right wing. And, um, and, you know, this, this particular subject is a great example of something that I'm just very, very close to because I struggled with this so much writing liberal fascism. Um, because I understand as a cultural matter, as a sort of objective, you know, sort of common sense matter that right-wing dictators are different than left-wing dictators as a cultural thing, right? Right-wing dictators invoke ancient traditions. They invoke, uh, you know, ideas of, of, of ethnic identity and historical identity and linguistic identity. Um, they are not fully at war with the past. Instead, they, they sort of lionize the past as a way to justify what they are doing. Um, you know, like, like Putin's a bad example of this because he is a creature of the Soviet Union, but his instincts are basically those of a right-wing dictator and you get this weird hybrid with him. But, um, you know, uh, you know, Mussolini is a better example. Hitler is a complicated example because he also rejected large parts of the German past and wanted to invoke sort of a pre-Christian, you know, golden age. Um, Franco is probably a really good example of this. Um, and one of the things that confuses things more and is one of my intellectual hobby horses, which I should probably do a whole sort of standalone episode on is historically and i can do this chapter and verse for a lot of this stuff um historically 
a lot of left-wing dictators realize that the only way they can hold on to power is to become right-wing dictators. Um, maybe not on the economics front, but on the sort of the cultural signaling front. Um, if you if you look at how, you know, what Stalin did uh, to solidify power and then to, you know, fight World War II, he, he wasn't doing it for, you know, global communism. It was called the Great Patriotic War for Mother Russia for a reason. Um, you know, Castro was a nationalist, even though he was a Marxist. Um, there's just a lot, it's a much more complicated thing. But anyway, as a general proposition, you know, like, like, uh, Victor Orban is a, you know, I'm not saying he's a dictator, but you know, he's dictator adjacent, you might say. Um, but he's a right wing figure, right? And left wing figures are different. They are much more anima, they have much more animosity towards the past. They want to start over at year zero. Um, you know, uh, Robespierre was a classically left-wing dictator. Vladimir Lenin was a left-wing dictator. They um, they want to overthrow the institutions of the past and create new ones, generally um, based upon sort of hyper-rationalist uh, principles. Um, they find that the cultural norms and traditions of the past are inimical to the revolution, right? And inimical to the, uh, the utopian schemes that they have, you know, the, the, the Mao's, you know, great leap forward. They're trying to erase bourgeois and traditional thought in lots of places or Pol Pot, you know, where you kill a whole generation of, of, of wreckers and bourgeois intellectuals. Um, so you can start over with the young people. Uh, whether Plato was serious about the Republic or not, there's a real left-wing component to Plato's Republic because Plato was arguing that all you needed was like three generations of brainwashing and you could create any kind of society you wanted. That has a very left-wing ping to it. Um, and so culturally, I get why, say, Father Coughlin, I'm sorry, it's Father Coughlin, one of the things, so I just listened to this podcast um, put out by Tablet and some public radio stations and some foundations um, about Father Coughlin, and it annoyed me in a whole bunch of ways because I'm holding a whole bunch of paper on Father Coughlin. Um, but there was also a lot of interesting stuff in it and some great uh, uh, authentic audio from back in the day, archival audio from back in the day. And But one thing I... I learned from it that I truly thought was wrong was that you pronounce it Coglin, like, like Cogsley's Cogs from the Jetsons, Lynn. Um, C-O-G-L-I-N phonetically is how you pronounce it. And I always heard Coughlin. I think I even heard, you know, Pat Buchanan, who grew up listening to Coughlin, Coughlin, call him Coughlin. But they play the audio from like the introductions from his radio show and coming up we have father Coglin, and it was clearly Coglin, and um so i didn't know that but anyway i get why Coglin is perceived as a right winger but what vexes me greatly is that as a matter of policy right as a matter of definition for the role of the state 
um, and what it should do about the economy and, and all the rest. He was a left winger. Um, and there are other parts about him that make him sort of left wing and much the same reason why, you know, there's a lot about Hitler that if you look at it objectively, that was left wing in the sense that if you think identity politics are left wing, you know, then Coughlin was a left winger. Um, but, uh, we're not going to get into all of that. Uh, you know, but Coughlin, if you look at the platform the, for the national union of social justice, uh, which was this party that he created, um, this crazy left wing. I mean, it was just crazy left wing. And, um, and so frankly was the Nazi party platform in 1920s crazy left wing. I mean, there was also a lot of anti-Semitism in there, um, in the, in the Nazi platform, but you know, nationalizing the department stores, public health stuff, you know, I mean, there's lots of left wing stuff in there and, um, or at least lots of statist stuff. And this is the sort of problem that I've got trying to think this stuff through is that, um, uh, the, the thing that keeps the kind of conservatism that I want to keep alive in America and that I think, you know, the remnant of, of traditional conservatives in America still wants to keep alive has, has to have anti-statism in it. It has to have a libertarian ethos with regard to the role of government. It just has to, because once you get rid of, the ant- and this is the part that I talked about a bit with Matt, but it's just been sticking in my head. And apologies, I may end up writing about it for the Friday G file if I can if I can write it at all. Um, the thing that you know that keeps conservatism from just simply becoming right wing statism is a healthy amount of skepticism about the role of the state. And if you get rid of that, right? If you embrace the the sort of post-liberal nationalist, you know, whatever we're supposed to call it these days, you know, uh, ethos, which says that you can use the state, there's nothing wrong with using the state to reward or protect or um, support the people that we, the people and the ideas that we think are worth supporting um, so long as we get to use the power then you're just a, you know, you're a right-wing status instead of a left-wing status. And that's how American conservatism, Anglo-American conservatism, stops looking distinct and starts looking like European conservatism. Um, and I mean old-style European conservatism. Um, you know, the, the, the sort of the beginning of the study of American exceptionalism Begins with this German sociologist. I know I bring him up a lot, Werner, Werner Sombart, who asks, "Why is there no socialism in America?" And his argument boils down to, which is picked up by Bryce and picked up by Lewis Hartz, um, and then Seymour Martin Lipset and others. Uh, the argument, first and foremost, begins with the fact that we didn't have feudalism in the United States, which meant that we didn't have hard notions of class in the United States. Um, and I know that a lot of people on the left think we have a very thick class structure. I just don't think we do, certainly not compared historically or contemporaneously to a lot of other countries. 
But I'm not saying we don't have a class structure. I just think it's much more semi-permeable than, you know, Bernie Sanders would have you believe. Um, but without class resentment, you don't get socialism in Europe. Without feudalism, you don't get socialism in Europe. And, um, and part of that sort of why is there no socialism in America also answers the question, why is there no fascism in America? Um, because fascism was right-wing socialism, which is what even the Bolsheviks called it. It's what Trotsky called it. It's what Stalin called it. Um, it was the idea that you could use the state to promote right-wing ends instead of left-wing ends. And, um, and I'm glossing over a lot of other stuff, but that's the gist of it, really. And the second you get rid of this dogmatic opposition to the idea that the government can or should, and those are different things, right? Um, this idea that the government can or should run the economy, outthink the market, uh, run people's lives better than they can run them themselves, then as a policy matter, you're really no different than left-wingers who believe that kind of stuff. And so, I, again, I don't think that conservatism is just about libertarianism. I think there's sort of a, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a prudential test that you kind of have to apply in the moment. But I keep thinking about, you know, Irving Kristol used to argue that he believed in a conservatism that was anti-left, but he never had much patience for the anti-state part. And this is just the part where I think he was wrong. Um, or at least he was wrong when he put it in those terms, because Irving certainly had an enormous amount of skepticism about the state running the economy and all that kind of stuff. But he also talked about you know what a conservative welfare state would look like. And one of his defenses, which I actually think is a lot of merit about like Social Security and Medicare and stuff, is that a uh, you know a subsidy or a dole, whatever you want to call it, for old people is just not nearly as corrosive to society as one for young people. And I think that's a really good sociological prudential point, right? If 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 you've worked hard, you've raised your kids, you bought a house, blah 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 blah, you're no longer able. Or, or, or desirous of being part of the working economy because you're 65 or 70 or 70, whatever the thing is, right? At that point in your life, getting a check from the government isn't going to corrupt your work ethic or corrupt your morals or any of that kind of stuff. It may make you intransigent about needed entitlement reforms, but that's a different criticism. Um, but it wouldn't, it doesn't, it's not the same thing about like giving um, a, a universal basic income to 18 year olds and what that might do to them. That is not necessarily me saying that we shouldn't have a UBI. I don't think we should, but you know, I'm open to the argument. Charles Murray makes the argument and makes it well. Um, um, but it's just different, right? It's just different, like covering young people's bills so that they actually don't think about how to organize their lives and save and all that kind of stuff. It's just completely different culturally and psychologically than, than taking care of people who, you know, have bad knees and can't 
be a cashier at a supermarket anymore or can't work construction anymore or can't, um, you know, can't do the math of, you know, whatever, or can't be doctors, whatever it is, you know, there's just, it's a different thing. And so I'm, I'm sympathetic to, you know, Irving's prudential stuff, but his dismissiveness about the anti-state thing, I think is, um, is, was misplaced because it has to be part of what conservatism is about in America or conservatism in America um, is going to be a very different thing. And, you know, and if, if the, if the sort of JD Vance version of conservatism wins out, then I'll stop calling myself a conservative and I'll call myself a classical liberal or, you know, a conservative in the American tradition or whatever. I mean, the labels are not the most important part of this. The concepts are, and the fights are. And, um, the great source of optimism about all of this is that a lot of the stuff that a lot of these sort of post-liberal nationalist, whatever types are saying may sound fine for a three minute hit on Tucker, but it's actually not what most conservatives actually believe. Um, you know, because most Americans, including liberal and Democrat Americans are much more anti-government than, than the, the eggheads and the activists want to admit because we live in a profoundly liberal culture that has this whole don't tread on me. You're not the boss of me ethos that manifests itself in different ways on different sides of the ideological spectrum. But there's a lot of libertarianism in left-wing stuff. Um, it's just that it's about things that we don't, that conservatives don't think you should be all that libertarian about, you know, defund the police is a libertarian concept soup to nuts. Um, a lot of the sort of anti-patriot act stuff that we saw on the left was very, you know, was of a very libertarian flavor. It's just that conservatives think that the one place that the government and the state really should have a much freer hand is on things like law and order and, and fighting uh, violent enemies of our society. And so it's just, it's weird how it's distributed. And we tend, you know, conservatives tend not to recognize the libertarianism of um, our ideological opponents and our ideological opponents tend not to recognize um, the libertarianism or at least the intent behind the libertarianism of their um, ideological opponents. Anyway, so this has been in my head. I've now gone an hour and one minute. Um, it has been one of the longest weeks of my life and there's still much to do before I sleep. So, uh, again, I apologize for not hitting my quotas this week. Um, um, but I had no choice and I have no regrets about it, except for the fact that maybe I should figure out a better way to communicate these things to people. Um, Please become a member of the Dispatch if you can. Um, it's it's really the most important thing for us is to grow in our paid membership. You know, things are going great, but there's just so much more we want to do. And it depends on people who, um, even if they disagree with us from whatever perspective, understand what we're trying to do is important and want to help. 
and think that we're provide what we're providing is a value, which I, I honestly and sincerely believe it is. So thanks again, and I'll see you next time. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.